Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I'm East Forest. Really excited to bring to you today a podcast conversation with my dear friend, Charles Eisenstein. Charles was on the podcast actually before, but way back at episode 21. So here we are in the triple digits and uh, so happy to have Charles come back. He recently wrote an essay called The Coronation that was addressing his thoughts on the COVID-19 situation. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a little pandemic that's going around the world. And it's a long essay. I think it's like 9,000 words, and that that's long for an essay, especially those online. And it kind of caught fire online. Like, it really made the, the paces around. I, mean, I think, like, three or four people shared it with me when it came out, and I, I think he said that it broke their server, that so many people were downloading it or at least checking it out. Too many eyeballs on it, you know. It's a good problem to have. And anything that gets a lot of attention had a little bit of controversy, or I should say dissent, and other thoughts swirling around it. So I reached out to Charles and I said, would you like to come on the show and uh, be great to catch up and hear about what you're going through and what you're thinking and also give him a chance to talk about some of the stuff that's come up and see if any of his thinking has changed. So it's awesome. It's timely and I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Charles is someone that I met in 2008 back at the very first reality sandwich retreat that I went to in Boulder, Utah, which if you're an astute listener of the podcast, that's where I now spend a lot of time. It's where I live in addition to Boise. And I wouldn't be there in some ways if it wasn't for Charles because I just read his book, The Ascent of Humanity. It's a very long book. And I was really into that book. And I read the whole thing. Um, it was one of his early books. And it was really powerful for me because it kind of discussed sort of like how we got from the Stone Age where we made the first fire that created a separation between man and nature, between light and dark, between cold and heat in a sense, that lit a fuse that led to the ascent of humanity that goes through everything we went through from there. You know, all the way through agriculture and the Industrial Revolution and continuing continuing up in the acceleration of our experience through uh, the Atomic Age and the Information Age all the way to now to these Covidian ages that we find ourselves in. Uh, and if I'm correct, his argument in the Ascent of Humanity is kind of like the place that we're going, this age of reunion, as he calls it, um, the only way we could get there is through this path that began with that first fire in the Stone Age. Like, it is our path, and it is fraught with mistakes and ugliness, but it is also beautiful and sacred because that's the, that's our trip, in a way. So, naturally, we see the time that we're in now as another uh, another chapter in this story of change that is absolutely intensifying, but... As we speak about in this conversation, you know, Charles mentions that this is probably, you know, one of many crises, of course, that we'll go through, but a series of experiences as a people on this planet that will take us towards this age of reunion that's less of a destination, but an unfolding that I would say is already occurring. So I think you're going to really really dig the conversation and we will get right into that. Just want to say thanks to everyone who came to the came to well you know was at the live stream the virtual medicine ceremony that i played on may 2nd 
this one we simulcast over on Facebook in addition to YouTube and some other spots. And again, just I can't thank you enough for the support and all of your donations. Uh, it's really gotten me thinking a lot about living in the gift. And Charles is the perfect person right now to be having on the show because I'm, I'm thinking about what he's been talking about since I first met him was this idea of what does it mean to be living in the gift and operating in the gift. Uh, I helped I help produce a, a talk of his in Portland, Oregon uh, many years ago. And uh, he stayed at my house. And I remember uh, one morning I was showing him my early website, not the one I have now, but an earlier version of my eastforest.org website. And I was trying to pick his brain, like, you know, how can I be walking in the world that I am, this music industry, and still keep these elements of of operating in the gift? And we had a really thoughtful discussion about it, and I appreciated that. And here I am, I don't know how many years later, that was maybe seven years ago, I don't know, but we, I'm, I'm deeply thinking about it again. I feel like that's something that's coming up for me uh, in this COVID process, is about that, and how I can step further into that and what it can do for my work and my energy and my life and and what it looks like but it's something that is unfolding for me so i'm not i'm not rushing it i'm tending the garden so that i can listen so anyway um i don't even know where i was going with that <laughs> he's an amazing guy when this stuff started to go down with covid-19 i actually was thinking to myself as i often do when there's big events happening i can't wait to hear charles uh, Charles's perspective, because it's often one that is uh, unifying, but also above the fray, the discourse of the back and forth. And it's a it's a sober voice. He's brilliant, uh, and he walks his walk. Uh, oh, so I was saying, because I read that book and it was inspiring. And he was at this conference. And it was the first one they did in Boulder, Utah, and that's what motivated me to go. I was living in New York City at the time, so that's why I went to Boulder for the first time. Was essentially because I to meet him and to read, you know, I just read his book. It was him and Daniel Pinchbeck and Dennis McKenna. Pretty badass group. Um, so it's his fault that I live in the middle of nowhere. No, but he's, he's a great guy and, and I've always uh, appreciated his point of view. So yes, thank you to everyone who came to the live stream ceremony. It was just amazing. It's amazing to see people diving deep into themselves with medicine or the medicine of any kind, the medicine of breath or relaxation or plant medicine all around the world at the same time. Uh, It touches my heart, the support you give me, and also the way we come together as community. So that video uh, will be up on YouTube. I think it's still up on Facebook. I'll keep it up at least for several weeks if you want to check it out or continue your work or if you missed it to have your own journey. And thanks to those who came to the East Forest Council. That was a really sweet way to gather on Zoom in a, with a small intimate group on Friday and Sunday before and after the event to uh, to meet the others, as it were. Uh, I will be doing some more live streams in the future, but we're still trying to, I should say, I'm still trying to figure out what that will be. There's a couple options, and there's one that's very exciting that I'll be able to tell you about soon that's a, sort of a new venture that we're going to be taking online because that's what the times are calling for. Uh, but thanks for giving the podcast a review. You can give it five stars. You can do it right now on Apple Podcasts while we're getting into the conversation. Uh, you can write a review too. We have one from jmac333333. You heard that, right? It says, recent listener and very glad I found this podcast. Well, thank you so much. Um, you guys are great. 
I also released on um, Bandcamp three guided meditations, which you will be familiar with if you've listened to all the guided meditations here on the podcast, but I mastered them with Taylor Dupree as a wonderful mastering engineer to make them sound better and have put them into distribution to be on Apple and Spotify and all those platforms on May 15th, 2020. But they're on uh, Bandcamp now as a little bit of an advanced kind of release. So if you want to go listen to those in their full glory and share them around, there are three new guided meditations on a small album that is called Still. So we're going to dive into this. Tomorrow I head back down to Boulder, Utah. I'm going to go down there and do a little repose and rebuilding uh, these these ceremonies. They're nourishing for me, but they also take a lot out of me. I can talk more about the energy of playing those and how it's different than uh, doing a normal performance. But that will save for another time. All right. Without further ado, this is Charles Eisenstein. Well, it's good to see you. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming back on. It's uh, I think it was about a year ago that we last. Well, we saw each other at Sand, but as far as podcasting, that we last mm-hmm. spoke. And even since we last saw each other at Sand, obviously a lot has changed, and in some weird ways, not much has changed for my own self. Like I was just thinking about this last night. What has changed a lot is that I'm not traveling a lot. I'm not out traveling for for work, but aside from that, I tend to not travel. I don't tend to go many places. You know, I'm sort of like my day to day life is like this. I'm sort of making music and in charge of my own hours, so to speak, during the day. So that part of my life is is sort of the same. And I don't know about you, but I feel like there's this weird. <laughs> I mean, you wrote about this really overall in your essay, but there's this this sort of double edged sword energy happening of some things are better, some things are worse, all at the same time. Some things are sort of the same. Like I was down in in Boulder, Utah. You're familiar. That's where we met 10, 11 years ago. Yeah. So I have land down there now. Boulder is better with this. There's no planes flying overhead and no tourists. It's like it used to be probably 100 years ago, you know. And and that's a strange... I feel... Sometimes people feel like a guiltiness of like, this is a in some ways a better way of life when it's when you're not directly affected by the COVID. Even with the money stuff and, you know, there's these the silver lining of it. Um, What have you found for yourself personally that uh, sort of these mixed emotions of it? Yeah. Um, If I can remember everything that was brought to mind by, by your opening there, Um, maybe starting at the end, uh, a lot of the uh, effects that it's going to have just haven't reached people who have been somewhat insulated by, money and and good fortune i would say i was going to mm-hmm. say privilege but i would actually even expand that to say good fortune that some people have jobs that are immediately impacted and other people don't you know um and there is a certain amount of correspondence to general economic advantage but there's also just some people are less affected than others temporarily but the effects have are just starting to reverberate throughout the economy, throughout politics, throughout society. So I think that 
it, I, I sometimes have the sense of living on borrowed time. Like, cause I'm like you, I do a lot of my stuff online anyway. So my daily life, I mean, it has been negatively affected in, in some very important ways, but I'm not hungry right now. You know, I'm not homeless. Uh, I'm not wondering uh, how to pay, pay to the, the rent. But I do have like this sense that it just hasn't quite reached me yet in that way. And maybe it never will. Maybe we, we don't know what the future is. Um, and again, like you, the biggest impact is that I'm no longer traveling. And that that's got to feel good for you. And oh, my ways. God, it's such a relief. A there's there's yeah. not an option. Like, it's not even like there's a guiltiness of like, well, maybe I should do this or that. You can't. Right. None of us can. <laughs> like, I've been, I've been looking for excuses to say no to some of the invitations that I've been getting. Uh-huh. You know, they're like, my, my ego is like, yeah, this is very prestigious or yeah, this is going to do, you know, expand it's my hard audience. To say no. yeah, yeah. Or, or, and then either that or it was like, oh, these are such wonderful people, you know, and this is such a good cause. I really want to contribute to it. And, but uh, the, the air travel was really wearing me down. And, and being away from family, you know, just my, my son is, uh, I have a bunch of older grown kids, you know, but I have a seven-year-old. And in the last couple months, we've just become such buddies. Oh, wow. It, there's nothing on earth that I would trade for that. And so this, so I think that I'm, I'm having a personal version of what our whole society is having which is coming out of the, the crisis, or I would say moving into the next phase of it, where we may not be under lockdown, how do we want to live? This, this pause has given me a welcome opportunity to, to look at what I've been doing and to say, you know, I, maybe I don't want to do that anymore. Maybe I'm going to be way, way more circumspect about traveling. Maybe our whole society is going to say, we don't want to do things the way we've been doing them. So for me, like, uh, I don't know, I'm having a lot of realizations about travel that how, um, uh, in a way, like nonchalant, how lightly I took travel. How I didn't all, really... All of us. Yeah, all of us yeah. have. Yeah. I didn't respect it as a journey. In mm. the old days, if you were going to travel, you would really prepare. You would prepare gifts to give to everybody who you who you met. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really do that when I'm like traveling once or twice a month, and each place I go to, I'm, there's a day here and a day there and two days here, and you know, it's not a journey. It's a routine, and maybe for me, I want to make travel into a journey again. And when I do it, hold that sacred, just like everything else. So that's one thing that's coming up for me. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Something that keeps coming up over and over again in this idea of like the gifts that are being given to us in this new story has a lot for me to do. And I'm hearing this echoed in you with the simple things, the immediate things. Like I feel genuinely so grateful for my health for having this home to stay in, for having this studio to work in, um, just the time to just 
look at just sit in the sun outside. I mean, really, when I at the end of the day, I often run through a little like, what am I grateful for as I'm nodding off to sleep? And almost always the first thing that comes to my head is like weather, like, oh, the that that sunshine today was so awesome. I so enjoyed that. And that's the first thing that comes up to my, my, my body's and emotional appreciation. It wasn't like the deal I made or the thing, you know, that can be down the list. And those things are coming to the fore in a kind of way that because there's nothing else as much left, I'm, I'm so valuing what I actually have. And it, it's kind of when you strip away people's identities, like through their jobs and their works and their travel and the meetings and, you know, what's left. And for some of us, that's a, that's a good thing. And for some of us, that can be a troubling thing because maybe you haven't done a lot of looking to see like, what, who am I? You know, what, what, what do I identify with? And there is a stripping away of identity through this process. But what I want, I'm trying to get to is that there's this element of choice. And I really feel like what is, will help bring this, whatever our new story is for each of us, you know, it comes from the inside out and it will be that level, like we have to choose it. You know, we have to, it's sort of now, like you said, it's, we, we can't travel. So now we're like, the gift is bare in front of us. But at some point, you will be able to choose. And you need to decide how you want to navigate that. And, you know, what can we take from this experience to say, this is good. You know, this is good for me. I actually appreciate this. I like this. And I, I felt that was echoed in your in your essay, this idea about choice. Yeah. Yeah, one of the gifts that coronavirus is bringing me and many other people and maybe us as a society is that it's making unconscious choices conscious again. Mm -hmm. It's liberating us from compulsions, from routines, from have-tos, from the things that we just unconsciously did. Even if, if we had pause and now that we are pausing, we would say, you know, that isn't the life I wanted to live and that isn't the world I wanted to create, but I was kind of helplessly caught up in it. So now we have, I think, the choice to go back. As a society, we could try to go back to the way things were, maybe, you know, with face masks on all the time, but everything else the same. I mean, that's kind of the, the desire is to open up for business again and go back to normal. That's the dominant desire for sure. And I think yeah. that's going to concurrently exist no matter what. There's always going to be this pull to for portions of people. It's like that's the only idea they might have is to just go back. Go back to quote normal. And, and that's a natural stage, mm -hmm. I think, of a letting go process. Denial. You know, I, I want this to be over. I want this not to have happened. I don't want this initiation. I don't want this transition. Why, why is this happening? There's this kind of this anger at circumstances that are changing. And it's part of the grieving process, actually. Yes. Denial. Yes. And maybe mm, people are starting to move through that into the further stages. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but at the end comes acceptance. Things are different now. And that is an empowered place because you're no longer clinging to the past or clinging to an illusion. You've accepted reality. And from a place of acceptance, choice is available. And for me, you know, it's, it's the, the unconscious choices I've been making to live in a certain way, to travel a lot, 
it's not that I'll necessarily stop doing that, but some of these unconscious have-tos and, and motivations have been laid bare. Many people, like people are cooking now much more yeah. than they were before. People are learning yeah. how to cook, like like YouTubes on how to like make food. <laughs> They're super popular. Are people going to really want to go back to restaurant food? Uh, or are people going to be like, you know, I actually like living this way. Now, to some, you know, in, in certain ways, there are, of course, then bigger issues because it's not that people are just lazy or bad, but they eat at restaurants a lot. It's that their lifestyle demands that kind of efficiency and convenience. They're, they're, they're tired, not just de-skilled, but that's part of it too. So it is, I mean, I've never seen this in my lifetime. Uh, nothing like this has happened since World War II, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. as far as this big an interruption in normal life. What an opportunity it is Global too. It the the idea that it's everywhere. That I, that's what's hard to wrap my head around. Is like it's like we're all. I, I it'd be hard to imagine such an occasion happening. Where like in the past, if I were to think like the whole world is going to go through this collective uh, at the same time, uh, sort of space of pause. Mm -hmm. I, I I would have had a hard time believing that was possible. Really. Yeah. If you had said three or four months ago that. There would be no more airplanes flying overhead, and, and it wasn't like World War. You know, right. it would. It wasn't complete. Yeah, in a lot of ways, people are holding it together in a way that I find quite courageous and admirable. Um, initially, when this happened, so down down in Boulder, I have a men's group down there, and some of the guys down there, you know, they're the kind of folks who moved down there for a reason to get away from what they saw as a, a story they didn't want to be a part of, and. There was this like impulse about we should, you know, I need to get more guns, that kind of thing. You know, they already have a lot of guns down there for hunting for whatever the reason. But there was this feeling of like things could really go off the rails. You know, when are people going to start showing up at our doorsteps down here for food, that kind of thing. And it's not that that's not a possibility of reality, but it's more that it, this time reminded me a bit of right after 9-11 when I was in New York City and uh, for about a week or two. Everyone was talking to each other. I remember being on the subway and going over the um, Manhattan Bridge, and it was me and this like gangbanger guy. And I'm just like, you know, a young white guy. We never would have talked, you know, ever. And the two of us were going over the bridge watching the still smoldering towers. And I remember the two of us talking, just sort of like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. What do you, what do you, how, 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 what do you think about it? And there was this point of connection and solidarity. Um, yes. I remember the, the National Guard going down Canal Street and everyone stopped and applauded. This is before like the nationalism became sort of uh, politicized and stuff. It was just sort yeah. of like, yes, you're helping. Thank you. And I'm feeling that, you know, that base humanity now of, of uh, for, for all intents and purpose, people just buckling down and dealing you know, most people I see, you know, 99.5 or 9% of people are not sort of affected directly personally by the virus, you know, physically. So it's a very strange reality. It's like this story we're hearing all the time. Uh, but it, it is it is bringing out a, a kind of human nature that I appreciate. 
despite yeah. what we see in the news about, you know. Yeah. The way I see it is that when the structures and habits and institutions that keep us separate from each other, that keep us too preoccupied or too afraid of each other break down, then another part of human nature comes to the surface, which is the desire to share, to be generous, to take care of each other, uh, what you're calling solidarity. That's actually natural to human beings. Mm. When, when, when things fall apart, you know, they're, they're, you're like, well, what am I going to do now? And there are people to, who have needs. There are neighbors, maybe. This, Rebecca Solna described this in A Paradise Built in Hell, examining the aftermath of a bunch of natural disasters and man-made disasters and, and how people react. You know, it's not dog-eat-dog, looting and, and strong preying on the weak. It's, oh, I've got food. Oh, I've got uh, an outdoor kitchen I can set up. Oh, I've got extra blankets. You know, people, they start taking care of each other. And, and it's like this pent-up desire in modern human beings to really be who we truly are, which is servants of the whole, which is carriers of gifts, which is uh, to, to bring uh, benefits and beauty and life to the tribe and to life. Like, that's why we are born. We are here to serve life. And the structure of modern society kind of encourages the opposite from the economy where the most uh, lucrative professions are by and large those that extract from the planet uh, and, and diminish life in various ways uh, to the separation that's created by our domiciles um, to, I mean, there's many, many uh, aspects of modern society that, that cast us into competition with each other, the money system that separate us from each other, that render us as these alienated individuals, breaking down the bonds of community and extended family, even technology like air conditioners and cars. I mean, this, we live in this matrix of separation. And when it wavers, when it crumbles, it's like this pent-up uh, altruism, service, solidarity, generosity, it's finally getting some air. And it really, that's for me the most, and then, you know, it's the most hopeful thing. And it points to where we might go in the aftermath of the crisis, if there is an aftermath, uh, and not just a morphing into different forms. But even if, if that happens, it's still asking us who we want to be and where we want to go. Like we could build a society based on taking care of each other and taking care of the planet. Because if such enormous changes are possible in such a short time, we start to ask what other enormous changes are possible. We yeah. can do anything if we agree on it. Yeah, it's it shows you a bit the emperor with no clothes kind of thing. It's like mm -hmm. it shows you that um, it truly is just a collective decision, and we just have to, you know, what would motivate us making those decisions? And it is truly act possible to do those things. It is just a matter of uh, the motivation to do so, uh, the pressure being strong enough. But I love that phrase, being carriers of the gift. Um, you know, what what is the role of how can we live in the gift? 
as a phrase that you use as an action in this new story, in this transition. Like, because we hear this phrase that we're all in it together, but we also, as you spoke about at the beginning, we're affected by this quite differently. And particularly people who are of of color or people who have less money or countries in that way can be affected quite a bit more or older people or sick people or goes on and on and on. And so there's a large disparity in how this affects people. But if someone's like saying like, how do I, how do I walk through this story with the most grace? If I want to do it in the spirit of the gift, how do we do that? I think it begins with an orientation. It's not like I can't say, okay, here's what everybody should do, because that depends on your unique position in the world. So some people are, you know, giving money away to people who are in a desperate situation. It could be uh, a relative. It could be strangers. Uh, This impulse to take care of the ones I love can expand as we realize that the scope of our love uh, wants to be universal. So that orientation actually attracts opportunities to act on it. So I, I think that it's just... Like, I can't answer that for any one person. All I can say is to trust the impulse and to know yourself as being here to, to, to give to the world. It's, it's obvious, if you look at your life, that mere survival is not the most important thing. Because that's an illusion. You're going to die, no matter what. The question isn't, how can I save myself from death? The question is, how do I live a good life? Knowing that I'm going to die someday, knowing that nothing that I accumulate, no amount of assets, no amount of money, no amount of insurance, no amount of safety and precautions is going to make me immortal. And I can't take any of it with me. How do I want to live? How do I want to die? Do I want to buy guns and make sure that I've got enough food even if everybody else doesn't? Is that really who I am? Or when push comes to shove and a hungry person comes to my door, do I actually want to take them in? Do I actually want to show them hospitality? Do I want to show them generosity even if there's no guarantee that I'll be okay? You know, in those moments when when your heart says yes and your mind is afraid, who do you want to be? That's And there are people out there who exemplify both. And as Mr. Rogers said, in times of crisis, look to the helpers. Look to those who choose generosity, who choose bravery, because they can awaken it in in me. Their their actions tell me, yeah, it's okay. (laughs) You can do that. You're not crazy. So the, the... this heart yes of compassion is infectious. And when it infects me, then I feel grateful. Like I feel grateful to the person who, who left the last packet of pasta on the supermarket shelf. <laughs> I, I heard some kind of story like that where like there's all this, you know, panic buying and stuff, but then no one would take the last one. The last one, yeah. No one would take it. It's like, oh, you know, somebody else might need it. I don't want to take the last one. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, 
speaking about this this role of of compassion and presence because we you also were talking about in the essay uh, which I'll of course linked to uh, about the not knowing which of course is we never know but it feels exacerbated in this time like we were you know no one no one knows and we're rife with like conspiracies and all these different everyone's got their standpoint on, on what's really going on and let alone where things will end up. But it requires a kind of resting into not knowing and a kind of trusting, some kind of faith. But for myself, I really, it feels like the core of it there. Like I, I do feel a kind of solace in some kind of, there's some kind of trust. I feel like something being born that I can't see where it's going. I don't fully know what it is, but it feels right. And all I know to do is it's kind of compassionate presence and, and trusting and flowing. And I just keep seeing that as like that birth canal type analogy that from the outside, it looks terrible, right? It's bloody and violent and from the inside. It's also quite bloody and dark and violent, but there's new life being born. There's something on the other side that's beyond a boundary condition that we don't know. Mm -hmm. So what's the role of of not knowing, and how can we not fall into the anxiety of not knowing? Yeah, I've I've been down all of those rabbit holes, um, and my essays actually received quite some criticism for even giving space to the conspiracy theories well, I, w- I did want to bring up the criticism because I was tagged in one criticism of of note that um, I want to give you space to address it too. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of criticisms. Um, one of them, though, is that by even giving mention to the conspiracy theories in from a place of not knowing, because mm-hmm. I say like one of these co- theories could be true, and I think that there is something to look at in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm setting up a false equivalency, and confusing people when what they should really be trusting is the official narrative. Well, the official narrative is to say you're not allowed, you're supposed to immediately, you're supposed to say no to a conspiracy. Like there's a mainstream story and the others are like, you need to push them away immediately. Right. So from the mainstream story, if you really believe in that, then even to give credence at all to an alternative is disinformation. Because mm-hmm. you're just not even accepting the facts. You know, you must be a denier. You must be, you know, a conspiracy nut or something like that. And I am uh, quite turned off by people who think that they know for sure whether it is the mainstream or the conspiracy theorists. Like, it's like one person after another is coming and saying, here's how it really is. Here is the explanation for what's going on. Here is the meaning that that you can make out of this. Uh, and I guess it's, I've got no problem with people making offerings like that. But there's a kind of an arrogance that takes uh, takes the form of uh, cognitive biases that wall out any information that contradicts the narrative. So if, especially the more that you're invested in a given narrative, the more hostile you will probably be to anything that seems to violate it. So there's Mm. evidence coming up now that COVID-19, that the virus um, 
may be much, much less lethal than we've been told. The implication then being that a lot of this lockdown maybe isn't necessary, et cetera, et cetera. So people who, from the beginning, were hyper-suspicious of the totalitarian implications of the response to coronavirus, they're like, aha, see, I knew it. I was right all along. Where and, and if that new evidence is shaky, they're not going to look at that. They're going to take it immediately at face value. Whereas more conventional people are like, whoa, hold on here. Let's take a look at that evidence. Was that study actually accurate? Um, what a, did they consider this? Did they consider that? Bringing up one objection after another after another, which may, any one of them may be valid objections, but it points to a resistance. Like, like you subject anything that you agree with to no scrutiny whatsoever. Anything that disagrees with your position, intense scrutiny. And this in itself is a kind of a confirmation bias. And so I'm seeing, uh, and that's why we have the, this fracturing of, of the public mind into so many mutually exclusive silos and this inability almost to communicate across the divide. We see this in politics. Everything gets resolved along the lines of a politicized partisan narrative. Um, where, where, you know, now if you're out in public and you're not wearing a mask, well, you must be a Trump supporter. <laughs> because Trump said that, right? Like everything. So, so this is troubling to me. And that's, that's why I dared to say that I really don't know the answer. And that, and to end that maybe nobody knows. If you say you don't know to somebody who thinks that they know and is invested in knowing, that is, will be taken as an attack. So that was one of the, one of the critiques. Another one is that I am failing to acknowledge my um, white, male, cis, hetero, thin privilege, uh, able, ableist privilege. Sort of like a disclaimer, and, like you need to. No, it's that it's that I'm speaking from that place, and there's, and yeah, you know, in normal times, it's fine to philosophize, and dabble in alternative medicine. But come on, now, people are dying, so mm. we have to get rid of that nonsense and actually do something to save lives. Action, action, and I would, you know, in response to that, I'd say um, that the very edifice of power and privilege that these people are invoking is also the the source of the official narrative of the authorities and the systems that they operate the conventional medical system is all about domination and it is i mean basically they're saying uh trust the man Whereas, uh, you know, I've, I've spent decades um, uh, engaged with the worlds of alternative and holistic medicine. These are not an alternative to science. The things that are getting swept aside now and ridiculed mm -hmm. by the official, um, by the, by the uh, official medical authorities, vitamin C, vitamin D, supplements, you know. Or Chinese cetera, medicine, cetera, yeah. Chinese, yeah. Like all getting ridiculed. Um, 
it's not like there's no science behind these. There's voluminous science. And I'm like, why have we defaulted back to this orthodoxy? And then people on the so-called left who imagine themselves to be on the left criticizing dissent from this orthodoxy, which is, is the establishment. So right. they are the champions of some marginalized people and causes and ideas, but rigidly orthodox in other ways to the point where, you know, I'm just really getting confused about who's right and who's left these days. I mean, this precedes coronavirus when a lot of the anti-imperialist, anti-war rhetoric is coming from supposedly right-wing websites. And those who yeah. call themselves progressive are saying, trust the military, trust the intelligence services. Well, like, one side flipped, so the other one had to go to the other side and say, well, now we're going to have to- And they're all the, mixed together yeah, now. The like, opposition. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, um, yeah, the all, like, there's voluminous research that backs up things like medicinal mushrooms or elderberry extract or NAC or um, uh, uh, turmeric, you know, or vitamin D or uh, like a whole universe of medicine is just swept aside. Not to mention that in most states now, you can't go see your acupuncturist or your chiropractor. Right. My chiropractor is closed. From the perspective of conventional vi virology, that's a no-brainer because it wasn't real to begin with. Look it up on Wikipedia. You know, it'll say all of these things are quackery. But this suppression and othering um, is at the root of our civilization's problems. So anyway. Well, isn't, um, that a, isn't that, are we a little bit in a problem, in a pickle, because we're in a state where there's so much information that anyone can say anything and it's almost impossible now. Like Trump saying fake news is actually sort of symptomatic of there's a truth there. Like what is real anymore? All information. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say where anything comes from now. There's And anyone really can say anything. And there's a kind of a cloak and dagger of like people pretending, you know, this organization pretending to be another organization so their information can seem more legit. And you really can't know anymore. You really can't. Yes. And most things are parroted anyway. Almost everything is just a repeat of something else that was posted. News stories yep. too. Uh, totally. So we get in this state of just like, uh, what are we going to do? <laughs> it's making it really obvious. Something that's always been true is becoming really obvious now that our beliefs ultimately are a matter of faith. We would like to think that we base our beliefs on evidence. But what do you allow in as valid evidence? You have to choose. That is based on faith. Who do you trust? What source of information do you trust? Do you actually, you're not actually doing, you know, virology exper experiments on your own, probably. Whoever's listening to this, unless you're actually a virologist, you're taking somebody's word for it. You're taking, either you're trusting in the, integrity of the scientific establishment in the mechanisms of peer review, um, in uh, the integrity of scientific publishing and, and academic promotion and funding, like you're trusting that, that science 
or academia is converging upon the truth, or you're trusting somebody who says, oh no, it's all, they're, they're deluded and here's, here's the, the correct theory and here are my experiments that show it and here are some other scientists who, are, who back me up. And do you just take his word for it or do you actually look at his citations and then do you check their raw data and do you visit their lab to see if they're engaged in fraud? Like, do you actually do that? You can, and you guess what? If you do that, you still will not have absolute proof. So this, this situation and it goes way beyond coronavirus. It's bringing into obviousness the truth that belief is always a choice. We choose what we believe, and usually that choice is made unconsciously. Yes. And then we dress it up with reasons and evidence and persuade ourselves that we made the choice based on those reasons and evidence. But it's usually the other way around. Oh, then it becomes identity. The, you know, then it's, it's, it becomes yeah. entrenched in who you are. And then it's like, boy, you really have your, your heels kicked in at that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it makes it particularly acute right now. And it's difficult to, to navigate when it's hard to be in a space of not knowing, especially when maybe you thought previously you were in a space of knowing, a space of predictableness. And I think that's a really challenging lesson for all of us, but for folks particularly who haven't really sat in that feeling before of not knowing. How is this going to pan out? What is the truth? Maybe I'm going to hang my hat on the nightly news and I'm just going to, I'm going to hold on to that. But there's probably a part of them knowing that's like, man, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And no one really yeah. does. And everyone's got an opinion. And at some point you just, you can't sit on the fence forever. Like I sometimes, I look at myself and I'm like, is my position of not knowing a cop-out mm. from taking a stand and choosing a path? And I would say to that, to my inner critic, that there is a phase, a part of the process to embrace not knowing. And then there's a time to choose and then to base your plans and your choices on what you choose to believe, the meaning that you choose to make about the world. I'm not sure if I've really reached that point yet, but I am oriented toward that. Because, you know, uh, part of human life is about making plans, making agreements with others. And you have to have a common story of some kind in order to make plans with somebody. Like, for example, you have to believe that money will still be valuable in a month if you are, you know, doing some business thing together. Uh, or signing a contract or something like that. Like basic shared assumptions are necessary. So we are, and this is how I described it in the essay, that we're at a kind of a crossroads, a divergence of paths, where we're, we know soon we will have to choose what we're going to hold to be true, what we're going to agree on, and therefore what future we're going to attempt to build based on those agreements and based on that shared truth. And we may find that we were wrong. Like that is part of the process too, to finally decide, okay, here's what it means to start walking down that path. See, it's not to, not to be closed to evidence. It's to be humble in the face of the unknown. If you're humble in the face of the unknown, then 
instead of greeting contradictory evidence with, with you know, the defenses of confirmation bias, you'll take it in and be like, wow, that doesn't add up. Allow me to be troubled. <laughs> Allow this, this <laughs> data point to trouble me. <laughs> this willingness to step into the unknown, this willingness to be troubled, that is the only way that we'll ever stay honest. That's the only way we'll ever change. The problem isn't that we've started to walk a path. The problem is that we're fixated on it and, and, and refuse to consider an alternative. So, so in new territory, especially, we have to be a little bit more humble. And, and I think there's also that element of pause that's inherently happening now that's also required of saying, I don't know. And for myself, maybe it's a very male perspective of wanting to jump into action, you know, wanting to take, take actions and make choices right away. And I've been much in a space of, I don't know. Um, I take certain actions, but some I'm waiting because I don't want to react out of a certain base level of fear. I want it to be more from a place of um, a, a kind of truth of the choice that comes at the right time. Yeah. You know, there, there, I mean, that is a male quality of, you know, of action and assertiveness and taking charge, you know, and going to do something. Respond. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Genia Haddon says that that's the uh, uh, phallic male qualities. Hmm. Uh, and she says, neglected in our society is the testicular male qualities, which are about patience and <laughs> cons conserving and waiting for the right moment. Like, if, if action is not undergirded by softness, by patience, then um, it's going to rise to the occasion at all kinds of inappropriate times. <laughs> so, <laughs> I see your metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that there are other, like I think that this, that this waiting, you know, this patience is actually also a complementary quality to action. Absolutely. Uh, a mature, yeah. a mature male, a mature, you know, whatever, I don't want to get into the whole gender thing, but whatever, however you identify and whatever your body is, et cetera, et cetera, when the archetypal masculine is active, for it to be a mature masculinity, it has to also uh, encompass patience and waiting. Um, so yeah, um, there is part of us that wants to, like, <laughs> you know, we talk about spiritual bypassing, you know, or you philosophizing and escaping from action and not doing anything and just talking and so forth. And that is a kind of escapism, escapism. And there's another kind of escapism, which is to leap into action, uh, to escape the uncertainty, to escape the discomfort. But when you do that, you leap into actions that might not be helping, that might actually be reinforcing the conditions that cause the discomfort to begin with. Right. And I think we see a lot of that right now, leaping into action based on a certain understanding of disease that is based itself on an oppositional stance to the universe. Yeah, quilted. Uh, basically, yeah. the separate self beset by random natural forces and competing other selves, and therefore uh, achieving health 
and progress and well-being through the domination and destruction of the other, through, the, through insulation from the other, uh, through the conquest of the other. Like that whole paradigm pervades civilization down to its core. And when we leap into action, we're acting from that place and keeping out other ways to understand illness and other kinds of response uh, and other ways to understand death and other value systems that may not put surviving as long as possible at the highest place on the altar, but hold life sacred in other ways. Like, I don't want to be interpreted as saying, oh, let's sacrifice the old people so we can have freedom or something like that. It's about holding life sacred. Holding life sacred does not mean prolonging life as long as possible, although that is very often what it becomes in the medical system. Holding death sacred, yeah. Yes, it's holding death sacred. You can't hold life sacred unless you hold death sacred. Going back to what you said about jumping into action, it makes me think about also we normally want to jump into action that feels the largest and most impactful, our definition of that. And about this idea of nonlinear action where I've heard you speak about sometimes the action that maybe our heart tells us to do is something quite small. Perhaps it's like checking with the neighbor. Do they have um, what they need? And Well, that's not going to help coronavirus. That's not going to change the dominant story. But maybe something inside says that is the changing of the story. It's it, Something happens from the inside out. We're going to be living in these large dominant paradigms that are going to increase their control, whether it's the Chinese government or surveillance increasing in our own country. They're going to take these power grabs as they are. The kind of new story that's emerging can only come from the individual in those small ways. I don't know how else... The gift emerges because it's not going to come from a magical universal basic income and that solves everything. Even if that does happen, that actually is sort of happening. I, I, never would have thought yeah. I'd see Donald Trump up there espousing universal basic income a few weeks after Andrew Yang dropped out of the race. But um, my point uh, being is, Spain, is Spain is planning to implement it. Great. Um, but, you know, that can turn into two things. I mean, it could be on the one hand, universal basic income can liberate all of the musicians and artists and healers and and gardeners and to, who haven't been able to do their work because they've been struggling to make a living uh, to do their work now. But then they're on the uh, they're on the drip, you know. And then it's like, right, you want more drugs, right. you got to come to us. Yeah. Well, it's also right. You got to come to us. It's uh -huh. like okay, you get your pittance, which you need because we've destroyed all small business. <laughs> uh, and, and there's no way for you to join the elite. So you get your pittance as long as you're a good little boy and get your shots on time and get your prostate examined. Your and social get credit your, score is high enough, yeah. Right, you have yeah. to do as you're told. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it can turn into just increased dependency on the state. Uh, it can go both ways. It, and, and yeah, there's no, like you're saying, there's no like single bullet panacea. But going through it, would you not say that those small choices that maybe feel insignificant are actually important? Or what role do those play? Yeah. Um, for me, the, the, this crisis is, a, is one of a succession of many crises that are inviting us into a fundamental change in our, in our world story. And it brings up the question, how does our world story our mythology change. 
one way that it changes is at the grassroots level. Because the story isn't just an intellectual construct. It's an it, it, it takes the form of an experience of life. The story of separation takes the form of everybody's out for themselves. Everybody's trying to get the best deal. The world is full of ripoffs and competitors and narcissists and psychopaths and, and double-dealing, uh, egotistical, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's this hostile world. So any act that violates those expectations, it suggests a different story. It is a, uh, it's an anomalous data point in the story of separation. And it can be rejected. It can be explained away. Mm -hmm. But as people enter more deeply into the I don't know, there's more space, there's, there's more gaps in the shell of the story for those data points to come in. This is one reason why this, the time we are in is so potent. It's spacious. People are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there's room for a new story now. There's room. So, so I do think that these grassroots level actions are powerful. And usually that's all that is available to us. And this is not to say that we shouldn't organize, but even organizing is still composed of many, many, many interactions between human beings. And I think that the broadcast model of change or of organizing, where we somehow have to get a big platform in order to make a big difference, that often turns organizing into a creature of the old story, where everybody's in competition yes. for their call to get the big platform. This is what I wanted to ask you about. Now, it's like, how do we go into a new story that's inherently going to be inside an old story and not then be in a binary structure where it's us versus them? How do we include it all, the new story being one of all, including those who don't believe in that or aren't, aren't on board? I, I see the story of separation as an evolutionary stage. And it's not that I'm trying to demolish it, but as it breaks down, as, as it gets old um, and infirm, I want to be able to welcome people into a different story, to have a place for them to land after they go through the space between stories, after it all breaks down. And we can all do this. Like, this isn't like, you know, me who understands the new story and is in the new story coming to rescue those who are not. I'm also speaking to the lost parts of myself that are fully blinded by the old story and fully addicted to it. Everybody has a foot in both worlds. Mm -hmm. And we bring each other into a new story together. When one is weak, another is strong. When one, I, I might invoke something in somebody, an inspiration, a realization, uh, giving courage and comfort to that part of them that wants to live in a different way. And then they do that for somebody else and somebody else. And then when I'm descending into despair, someone, that circle comes around to me and someone lifts me out of it and reminds me of what my heart knows is true. We're, we're in this together. And you could say that the, the story itself is helping us give birth to it, which doesn't mean 
that it is an inevitability, but it is a possibility. Mm. And we can step into service to that. And the way we step into service to that is first to be aware of the desire to be in service to it, and then to be oriented toward opportunities to serve it, which, as you were saying, could be something with just your neighbor or your child or somebody in, in the community or a piece of earth. Mm -hmm. Once the orientation is there and the consciousness of wanting that is there, opportunities flood in to do it. The un-Instagrammable, yes, the importance of the things that can't be memed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... I keep thinking back to when when you and I met, it was 2008, and it was a time when we were all very hungry for the calling of 2012. And this basically the idea of ushering in a new story. But looking back, I can't help thinking that we're obviously still in that and probably will be for generations. And here we are in a very powerful nodal point of it. And there will be others, uh, small and large, but this is a big one. Um, and what what is the, the doorways that are open for us? Uh, there's such incredible opportunity, going back to how we began, just saying like, hey, wow, I, I can't travel, and I'm starting to realize what I appreciate about that and what I miss. How do I want to reintegrate that into my life moving forward? And there's hundreds of things like that. How we eat, uh, how we interact with people, even just like interpersonal relationships with our partners and our, our families when we're home so much. It's like, wow, I've been bringing like maybe more intentionality to that. And look at the benefit I get from that. And there's so much opportunity in this. And we can be lost in, in the, the action and the reaction and the explaining it. You know, who did what and why? And, and that not knowing uh, gives you the spaciousness to appreciate, I suppose, what is it really just is right in front of you. <sighs> yeah. Yesterday I was on a call where the panelists all took turns speaking from the future, from 2030. Wow. About time travel. What happened? Hmm. Yeah, like what, 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 you know, where did coronavirus take us? You know, kind of trying to create Mm -hmm. the best outcome. They were all, everyone, you know, gave beautiful renditions of what the world has become. When it was my turn, <laughs> I said, here we are in 2030. How could we have known that the coronavirus was just the start of the unraveling? How the, and that everything that we thought we understood, even then, turned out to be totally wrong. How, how could we have known how deep the, the, the unraveling and the uncertainty and the unknowing and the falling apart would be? And now, after 10 years of this initiation, of this ordeal, now maybe we're feeling like we are turning the corner and that we're taking the, the debris of our old world and st starting to agree on what we want to create from that debris. I think that we are not at all done 
with the time of of non-normality. I think that the extraordinary times are beginning right now. And it's going to get more disruptive to not only more disruptive to our lives, but more disruptive to our understanding of who we are and what the world is and what's real even. It is going to be very disorienting for more and more people as every grasp at meaning-making falls short. Hmm. That's my prediction. And that's... Could be wrong. Could, things could go right back to almost normal. <laughs> well, if that is the case, uh, it's just another finger in the dam until the next crisis, uh, you know, as we felt in 2008 when the we had a form of collapse that we propped back up again. And this is a different, you know, angle coming at us. But as as we both know, there's many crises, uh, anything from peak oil to peak soil to goes on and on that could, you know, we saw it with Fukushima even. Like there are so many things. Mm-hmm. We had an earthquake here the other week in Boise, Idaho. And I, my first thought was like, it was Yellowstone. I was like, are you kidding me? I guess that's it. <laughs> that's yeah. it. So forget about coronavirus. <laughs> um, yep. So we always stand in in the face of those possibilities. And I heard Krishna Das speak about this a little bit the other day, just the idea of like, you know, we can't know these things. What do we do with that? And he's like, it's above it's above our pay grade. We're not meant to sit here and try to think about all the what ifs and how to plan. It's like at the end of the day, like you said, we're here in life, incarnate. And on two polarities of that are birth and death. We all die. And so how are we moving towards our deaths with grace and honor? And it seems like that's part of what coronavirus is. It's just sort of like facing what death actually is to us and what it's meaning and having that be at the face of all of our choices now. And and how do we feel about it? And I know you spoke about the war of death in your essay, and I that really feels like... I often say that and you could argue everything we do uh, whether or not it's on the surface or not, is in a reaction to, to death and knowing that we're going to die. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Um, ultimately, we're faced with a choice. How much of life do we want to sacrifice and for how long? You know, I mm. in the essay I said, I totally understand temporarily sacrificing civil liberties and social interaction to flatten the curve, et cetera, et cetera. But now, you know, they're talking about it could be 18 months. It could be that we never shake hands again. Uh, And I'm like, is that really where humanity is going? Is that the pinnacle of progress? To never congregate again, to never have a carnival, a dance party, um, a gathering. Like for that, we've advanced beyond that now. And why? To be a little safer. At what cost? Yeah. Yeah, at what cost? And and it's not black and white, you know. Um, I'm sure that if we were facing a billion deaths, then no one would disagree with this. I mean, if 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 it were if people were dropping dead all over the place, you know, um, like during the Black Death, that's one extreme. Another extreme is is you know what if it were a tenth as deadly as it is. You'd still save lives by social distancing. Should you do it to even save one life? 
You know, like this is not black and white. It involves a conversation about what do we value the most and why do we value safety so highly and more and more highly over the course of my lifetime to the point where kids aren't allowed to play outside anymore, unsupervised at least. Unlike, you know, when I was a kid, we ran all over the place. Yeah. So why? Why this fixation on safety? What are And what other values does that squeeze out? And how do we want to balance these values? It's not about recklessness. It's not about um, callousness to, to the people who are under threat. It is a nuanced issue. It is complex. It is, it, there are competing values that all need to be honored. And I, I, one reason I wrote the essay was that I wanted to put that on the table and to begin the discussion on what do we value and why. Yeah, and as you said, that spaciousness allows cracks for the new story, and that kind of control of safety even is a way of, of closing off spaciousness. And the gift in this whole experience right now is a lot of us are forced into a space of spaciousness. We have time and we have pause, and it's the great gift of allow. I always say that you know, spirit speaks through stillness, through space. You have to give it the space to be heard. If you're always running and rushing, it, it, you can't hear it. And mm-hmm. we really we have this opportunity to listen and and to wait at times. Um, and for some of us, as for all of us, it's being forced. But we have to choose. We have to choose to listen. Yeah. Well, it's always great to talk to you, Charles. And yeah, uh, good to see you as always. And I, I kind of entered into this conversation thinking about like the not knowing and knowing what you'd say about the not knowing. And uh, there's still that part of me grasping for wanting to know. Um, but in my heart, I know it's I never I never know with a little K, but I know with a big K. And then the big K just mm-hmm. knows that uh, there's nothing to know in a sense. <laughs> it's okay. Like you already know everything. And uh, there's a resting into this process of, of of waiting to see and making choices. And there's a dance there. And uh, I think it's okay for both of us to acknowledge that sometimes we feel one way and sometimes we feel another way. And it doesn't always have to be f- perfect grace, you know, uh, Mm-hmm. We all we're going to go through all of our emotions as we do in life, but this is one that it's a bit more obvious. Yes, yeah. Thank you for those thoughts. Yeah. Uh, so we'll link to to the essay, which is a, a great thing, and you also have a recent book, uh, largely about climate, and many mm-hmm. other wonderful books, and 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 podcasts, and, and talks, and online courses, and probably someday will convince you to get back out there and and speak in person. Uh, But thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Trevor. Appreciated it. So grateful that Charles could come back on the show. Thank you, Charles, for giving us your time and really look forward to deepening the conversation further in the future. This music that you're hearing in the background is the instrumental version of the Sing Me Awake guided meditation. That I mentioned is currently on Bandcamp. It will be on Spotify and Apple and wherever else you listen to music, uh, hopefully on May 15th. But uh, for now, it's just on Bandcamp. And this is just the instrumental version of that. I provide the 
music only version because you might be getting used to say the guided meditation version with a voice and want to try it on your own or just want to have some more spaciousness so every meditation essentially is two tracks one with the voice and one with just the music and that's what this is Thanks again for giving the podcast a review. If you enjoy this, you can share the podcast online, on socials. That always makes a big difference. That sort of personal testimonial. Thanks for writing me and telling me you know, nice things. I don't need to hear the unnice things. Uh, team at eastforest.org is the best way to reach out. And uh, until then, you guys keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But if you do, do it with grace.
Thank you.